The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Southern California wildfires threaten citrus orchards, especially the avocado plantings in the Ventura area. Scientists say there's bad news for future Sierra snowpacks. The snow line is rising. Delta farmers recently took on the Department of Water Resources at a gathering in Walnut Grove. The topic? California Water Fix, also known as the controversial Delta Tunnels Proposal. What do young farmers need to succeed? We have an in-depth report on that. Plus, the latest California crop harvest news and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Once again, fast-moving wildfires are threatening agriculture, ranching, as well as homes here in California. This time, it's Southern California. The Thomas Fire in Ventura County is burning in an area known for its production of citrus fruit and avocados. But it's too early yet for authorities to estimate the agricultural damage from the fire. The California Citrus Mutual and a local farm advisor say the fire appears to have affected many Ventura County groves, but the extent of damage isn't known yet. Windy and dry weather in Southern California creates the perfect conditions for wildfires. Unfortunately, our worst fears are being realized that we have not seen wetting rains across Southern California and for that matter, much of the Southwest. That was USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, who points to a high pressure system over the area that brought strong winds and low humidity. And by Tuesday morning, we saw our first major wildfire near Ventura in coastal Southern California. He says under the right conditions, a loose spark can create a wildfire that consumes hundreds of acres in a matter of minutes. Could be uh, wind-related down power lines, or more importantly, we have to watch for the situations where discarded cigarettes or campfires and uh, getting to the perspective of uh, homeless individuals trying to stay warm during these cold, windy nights. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. On another weather note, in the Central Valley, the cold temperatures this week have not harmed citrus fruit so far. Five years ago, the U.S. signed free trade agreements with Panama and Colombia. Since then, back-and-forth trade in agricultural and food products has flourished with very few problems. We like, and I think Colombia and Panama like what they have. Under Secretary of Agriculture Ted McKinney, just back from a trip to those two countries, nonetheless, concerns have been raised as to whether the U.S. might try to renegotiate the free trade agreements with Panama and Colombia as is going on right now with our North American free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. But McKinney told reporters... There's a lot of angst out there about what's going to happen to NAFTA. But no, no reference that I've ever heard of in redoing these two free trade agreements with Colombia and Panama. None at all. Trade's been quite even between what we sell to Panama and Colombia and what we buy. And as far as what they're sending to us... Most are products that we don't make. Coffee, for example, bananas, mangoes. So it's a natural trading partnership. With few conflicts or complaints. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. For years, Sierra residents have talked about winter rain falling on trails that used to be covered in snow. But there's been no scientific evidence to back up a change in the snowfall pattern. Now there's a new piece of research that suggests the snow line, the point of elevation above which rain turns to snow during winter storms, it might be changing. The study was published in the journal Water. It suggests the snow line has risen about 1,200 feet in the northern Sierra Nevada due to rising temperatures since 2007. <laughs> Now, 
Not only is there less snow, there could be less rain in our future. According to the Los Angeles Times, California could be hit with significantly more dangerous and more frequent droughts in the near future as changes in weather patterns triggered by global warming block rainfall from reaching the state. That according to new research led by scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. They're using complex new modeling and the scientists have found that rapidly melting Arctic sea ice now threatens to diminish precipitation over California by as much as 15% within 20 to 30 years. Such a change would have profound economic impacts in a state where the most recent drought drained several billion dollars out of the economy, severely stressed infrastructure, and highlighted how even the state most proactively confronting global warming is not prepared for its fallout. If you're a farmer or an ag producer, it's that time of year. Time for the holidays, yes, but also time for something that takes place only once every five years. Hi, I'm Sonny Perdue. Over the next few weeks, farmers and ranchers will receive their 2017 Census of Agriculture questionnaire. The Census of Agriculture is USDA's largest data collection effort. It aims for a comprehensive picture of American agriculture and provides some of the most widely used statistics in the industry. I'm asking you to do your part for American agriculture. Help us show the nation the value and importance of agriculture. Respond to the Census of Agriculture now. Producers can respond to the census by mail or with an updated online questionnaire, which makes responding easier than ever. The responses are due by February 5, 2018. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. 200 Delta residents recently crowded into Walnut Grove's Gene Harvey Community Center, where Assemblyman Jim Frazier and State Senator Bill Dodd hosted an event. It allowed the representatives of the California Water Fix Project to field questions from area farmers, ranchers, and citizens. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, there was nary an encouraging word heard regarding the Delta Tunnels Project from the locals in that room. Complaints to the Department of Water Resources about the costs, something like $17 billion, the effectiveness of the project, and the disruption to the local environment, as well as Delta communities, was the theme of the day. The plan to divert Delta and Sacramento River water to Southern California via twin 40-foot tunnels has lots of opposition for a myriad of reasons. Sacramento County Farm Bureau Executive Director Bill Byrd cited just one of the environmental threats to the area. We're still talking about the destruction of the Delta farming community, the loss of millions of acres of farmland, not to mention the environmental contamination that will take place when you put mountains of chemically laced sludge that's unearthed in any tunneling process. Bird also compared the Delta Tunnel's proposal to an early 20th century California water project that decimated a region north of Los Angeles. We have a pretty good idea of what happens when you take water from one area and move it to another. It's called the Owens Valley. It was turned into a desert. The farming communities there were destroyed overnight, and we're not even mentioning the mass extinctions of animal life that took place after that water was taken from the Owens Valley. At this point, indications are the state is going to have to take a step back and attempt to rethink the plan, especially with the withdrawal of financial support by the huge Westlands Water District, as well as the federal government's Department of the Interior. 
Here's this week's California crop report. Cotton harvest is nearing completion. The warmer temperatures accelerated the emergence of previously planted winter wheat. Growers continue to prepare fields for fall planting of wheat, barley, and oats. Silage corn is growing well. The harvest is ongoing. Black-eyed beans are being harvested and processed. Recent rains have helped germinate planted forage. The apple harvest is winding down here in California. Pruning continues in some stone fruit orchards, and old orchards were removed and prepared for replanting. Table grape harvest is nearing completion. Some vineyards were sprayed for weeds. Pears, pomegranates, kiwi fruit, and persimmons are being harvested. Olive groves are pruned. Navel orange harvest is ongoing. Lemon, grapefruit, mandarin, and pomelo harvests are continuing. Young citrus trees are being bagged to protect them from frost. The almond and pistachio harvests are complete. Walnut harvest is near completion. Soil amendments were applied in orchards. Broccoli, carrots, and lettuce all have excellent stands for the winter season. Fall and winter vegetables are being harvested and available at roadside stands. Strawberries continue to grow at roadside stands. Continued cultivation of organic garlic is ongoing. Fresh onion fields and tomato beds are being prepped for planting. Organic cantaloupe harvest has ended. Organic broccoli, celery, and spinach fields are growing nicely. Head, leaf, and romaine lettuce for the fall season are growing well, with many fields starting to be harvested. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland forage quality is improving, with some north and central state locations reporting fair to poor conditions. Earlier rains and warm weather stimulated germination, and foothill range and non-irrigated fields are showing green. Dairy workers were cleaning out corrals in preparation for winter. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Well, many farmers thought with the tax bill proceeding through Congress, they might get some benefits. Well, it turns out there may be some problems ahead. With federal tax reform headed to a House Senate conference committee, California farmers and ranchers say they may not gain as much from that package as they had hoped. Although many parts of the bill would help farmers and ranchers, the California Farm Bureau Federation's analysts say other provisions could be problematic. For example, they say elimination of a federal deduction for state and local taxes would put California farmers at a disadvantage. The National Young Farmers Coalition recently took a survey of young farmers, and those young farmers said the most serious obstacle for them is launching and growing their farm business is the affordability of farmland. Andrew Berenberg is the National Policy Director for the National Young Farmers Coalition, and he would like to see some changes in the proposed tax revision currently working its way through Congress that would ease that transition of land from old farmer to young farmer. The number one proposal that we have for the federal tax code is to create a capital gains tax exclusion for sales of farmland to beginning farmers. Um, so essentially, a retiring farmer um, that, that sells his or her farmland to the next generation could get a tax cut um, when it comes time to add up uh, the capital gains made on that sale of farmland. Um, and that's, you know, that's a win-win both for retiring farmers, uh, that's, that's a, a nice tax break, um, and that also incentivizes, again, that sale of farmland to the next generation and ensures 
that it stays in production. So that we think um, is something that, it, and especially until that tax reform bill is signed by the president, um, that's something that we're going to continue encouraging Congress to consider. Um, and it's it's a very common sense approach, um, and you know, an important piece to the puzzle um, in in making sure that that two thirds of U.S. farmland that's currently getting ready to change hands um, is able to stay in production and 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 continue um, contributing to our agricultural economy. Later on in this edition of the KSTE Farm Hour, we'll have more with Andrew Berenberg and that survey of young farmers and the profound challenges that lay ahead for them. Across the country, weather-wise... Things are evolving that are very consistent with the newly formed La Nina. Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Rippey says it's almost textbook La Nina already, and those conditions can include... Stormy weather across the northwest, rather cold conditions from the northern plains into the Midwest and the eastern U.S., and generally warm and often dry conditions across the southern tier of the country. And yes, Rippy says we've seen that pattern a lot over this last month or so, and it could be the predominant pattern for the winter. All these weather patterns have spelled trouble already for winter wheat in the plain states down into the Mid-South. Really across the, the plains from north to south, it's a variety of problems. First, in the northern plains, the wheat's been battling consistently dry weather plus recent unusually cold weather. And we are seeing some big problems with winter wheat establishment in states like Montana and South Dakota. Meanwhile, down in Oklahoma and Texas, it's been dry but too warm. And we're starting to hear reports of wheat that is also not very well established across the southern plains as well. Of course, at this point... It's not the end of the world for this crop. But he says it needs a change in the weather patterns now, good conditions in the spring. But with La Nina in place, the current patterns are likely to persist. So odds are a little bit stacked against a portion of this wheat crop, especially across the nation's midsection. Now, in most La Nina years, U.S. corn and soybean crops are not really affected very much, if at all. But that's not the case in South America. The one thing that we watch during uh, La Nina is Argentina corn. USDA meteorologist Mark Brusberg, he says in many past La Nina years... We've seen dryness in December that can result in very hot weather. There's been years where they've had heat waves right around Christmas time, and that's been the start of the problem. 2011, a big La Nina year. Argentina's corn yields dropped by 13% from normal. Soybeans fell 15%. That, of course, would have implications for exports and price prospects for U.S. growers. But, of course, not every La Nina gives them below normal yields, but that has happened a lot. So that's in Argentina. What about Brazil? There's really no impact that we can really put our finger on for Brazil. Mark Rusberg says the key time to watch for La Nina-related problems in South America right about now through December into early January. That's where we potentially can see problems. Potentially. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Ruben Navarretta is a syndicated columnist, works for the Washington Post, and he's an advocate for California's farmers. He says one mistaken belief of a lot of East Coast press organizations and politicians is that farmers are anti-labor, when nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, with the lack of labor now, the shoe's on the other foot. The misnomer somehow that you're exploiting the workers when it's the workers who actually set the price, because as I was informed during my last visit to uh, a packing house uh, in uh, Central California during this last visit, every single day when they go out to go pick mandarin oranges, uh, it's the crew that says what they want to be paid. And if you don't pay them what they want, they go down the street and work in construction or something else. 
So as long as you have a labor shortage, because Americans will not do those jobs, then the leverage really goes to the farmer, uh, farm worker as opposed to the farmer. And so, again, politicians have it completely backward. A survey by Morning Consult shows 74% of farmers and farm workers say they have been directly impacted by opioid abuse. A collaboration between the American Farm Bureau Federation and National Farmers Union, AFBF President Zippy Duvall says the survey is a united approach to the opioid crisis. There is a definite problem with opioid use in rural America. We're a family of farmers and ranchers across this country and we try to stay together to help people in our communities and we need to recognize that this is a disease and it's something that our government can't fix by itself. National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson says the survey shows the challenges rural America faces in combating opioid addiction. Farm and rural communities currently face major challenges in the fight against addiction, like access to services, treatment, and support. Time and time again, Farmers and ranchers have come together to help their families and their neighbors through challenging situations. That same resolve and compassion will help us break the grips of opioid addiction in rural America. The survey found that a strong majority of rural Americans believe that reducing the shame or stigma around opioid addiction can be effective in solving the opioid crisis. Duvall says that Farm Bureau and National Farmers Union want to tell folks in rural America that help is available. There is a stigma of people being ashamed to go seek out help, and we want to tell them that we understand this is a sickness. and. And we want them to find help to help their families through it. So we're trying to bring awareness to the availability of finding help for people that need it. Michael Clements, Washington. Is there too much marijuana in California? Well, before you answer that question, listen to this. California released long-awaited rules that will govern the state's emerging legal marijuana industry while potentially opening the way for larger-scale cultivation some fear could strangle small-farm growers. The thicket of emergency regulations will allow the state to begin issuing temporary licenses for growers, distributors, and sellers on January 1st. That's when recreational sales become legal. According to the Capitol Press, the state has been trying to determine what should be the appropriate size limit on cannabis farms. That debate has echoed fights over corporate-scale farming in the Midwest. At one time, four acres was under consideration, but preliminary information from the state indicated a maximum one-acre cap would be set on most cultivators. However... The regulations that were issued did not include that language, instead placing limits on only certain medium-sized growers' licenses. Beyond that, there's no limitation for the other categories of licenses. The executive director of the California Growers Association, Hezekiah Allen, said the rules appear to allow large businesses to obtain as many licenses as they could afford, opening the way for vast cannabis grows that could threaten the viability of small farms, which have long been the backbone of the state's industry. California, he said, could have just opened the door for well-capitalized interest to really jeopardize the success of the marketplace. He went on to say that with the state already saturated with marijuana, it could make an oversupply problem an oversupply crisis. 
Hey, happy Soils Week to you. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has awarded $5.2 million in grant funding for 86 projects as part of its Healthy Soils program. The program is the first of its kind in the nation and encourages farmers and ranchers to implement practices that reduce atmospheric greenhouse gases as well as improving soil health. Among the grant recipients, $235,000 go to the regions of the UC Division of Agricultural and Natural Resources. The project will implement composting, cover cropping, and reduce tillage, as well as monitor changes in soil properties and greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with implementation of these practices. They'll be implemented at three demonstration evaluation farms here in California in Merced, Sutter, and San Joaquin counties. Also, the University of California Davis received a grant of $250,000 to implement cover crop and compost application in processing tomatoes and feed corn crop rotation at the Russell Ranch Sustainable Agriculture Facility just outside Davis. Let's say I'm the U.S. farm sector and I'm going to the doctor for my annual checkup. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. So, doc, you got my numbers for 2017. I'm good to go, right? Right? I don't know that I would write you a clean bill of health. Uh-oh, but uh, Agriculture Department Deputy Chief Economist Warren Preston, playing the part of the doctor there, says, I'm not going to drop dead tomorrow either. The new 2017 USDA income forecast for me, the farm sector, is about the same as last year, maybe up a little. We are up a little bit, 3.9% uh, on net cash income and up 2.7% on net farm income. So a little bit of improvement from last year, mainly coming from the uh, livestock product side. Oh, yeah. Doctor, I see my test results. Uh, livestock receipts up from last year by over 7.5%. All right. But, oh, crop receipts down about 2%. Well, 2%. That's not terrible, is it? When you start to dig in and, and look at cost of production numbers for, say, corn or soybeans, it starts to look a little bit uh, tougher situation. Oh, but I thought I had my production costs down. They've been going down for two years. But you're shaking your head, Doc. We are seeing a, a little uptick in cost for the first time in uh, in two years. Yeah, but it says they're only up about 1.5% from last year. Part of that is tied to higher labor costs, interest rates ticking up on a little bit higher borrowing, yeah, well, the borrowing and uh, fuels and yeah. oils going up. About the borrowing, Doc, I did have to borrow more money this year. Uh, your report says my debt load's up, uh, what, 2.9%. Yeah, and I am feeling a little stressed here, but doctor, I'm hanging in there pretty good, right? But I think I would want to monitor things, keep a close eye oh. on your expenses and the degree to which you're leveraged because there, there are some worrying signs with worrying these signs. continued low oh, yeah. crop prices and that's what we're looking at uh, for the foreseeable future and can you survive on that kind of a diet? Survive? Di uh, di uh, of course but I've been cutting down on, on new stuff like equipment. But you can only live on that depreciation for so long and you're either going to have to reinvest to stay in business or you're going to have difficulty staying in business. Yeah, but you do say here in my checkup results that I am in a lot better shape uh, than when I had that uh, farm financial health crisis in the 80s. So uh, when have you got me down then for the next 2017 follow-up? February 7th. And that will also include the first forecast for 2018. Okay, cool. Thanks, Doc, for giving me the news. And thanks to Warren Preston for playing along with me. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. There's more uncertainty regarding the Waters of the United States rule. In an effort to provide more time to reconsider a definition of Waters of the United States, also known as WOTUS, and to prevent ongoing court cases from interfering in that process, federal agencies have proposed to delay the effective date of that controversial WOTUS rule by two years. 
According to the Ag Alert newspaper, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of the Army have been working to revise a 2015 WOTUS rule written by the agencies during the Obama administration. The 2015 rule drew widespread criticism from farmers, ranchers, agricultural groups, and others for expanding the agency's Clean Water Act jurisdiction over water, land, and land use. The rule has been put on hold by the courts, and the Trump administration has undertaken to rescind and replace it. In a proposal released last week, the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers proposed that the 2015 WOTUS rule would not go into effect until two years after the November 22nd action is finalized and published in the Federal Register. Agencies will be collecting public comment until December 13th on their request for the two-year delay in the effective date, and they said plans to move quickly to take final action will happen in early 2018. What's one popular American ag product sought after by customers in China? When we first started seeing this e-commerce revolution take place in China, there were a few pioneers that started marketing American fruit products. That was Keith Schneller, whose company, eBridge Asia, recently hosted a group of Chinese e-commerce executives who were in the United States under the auspices of USDA's Cochrane Fellowship Program. The Chinese businessmen visited both the East and West Coast to learn about American cold chain systems and online sales of fresh food. Schneller says Chinese sales initially involved fruit, but there is now demand for other things, too. Some of them are doing live oysters and live crabs, live lobsters. So for those types of products, it's really opened up some new opportunities. And what's another one of those ag opportunities? Nuts. There was a guy from one of the Oregon hazelnut companies. He told us they export 80% of their hazelnut crop to China. Bringing the story back to fruit, Susan Zhang from the Agricultural Trade Office at the U.S. Consulate in Shanghai organized the delegation and accompanied it to the United States. She talks about a growing appetite among Chinese consumers for American cherries. Back in 2014, we networked the Northwest Cherry Growers and China Eastern Airline Logistics and facilitated the first chartered airplane to shipping the Northwest Cherry to China. In the first year, there were only eight plane loads. For this year, for the past season in 2017, this number grows to 48, and they're shipping not only to Shanghai port, but also to more inland ports. And they're not only shipping Northwest Cherry, they are also shipping California Cherry. She says each Boeing 777 plane could hold about 100 metric tons of cherries. Meanwhile, what is one U.S. ag product that is still moving slowly? So far, the volume of U.S. beef going to China has been very small. They have a very strict protocol that's similar to the European protocol, and it's going to take a little time for our industry to gear up and have that type of beef available where they can start making larger shipments into China. He says this intensive two-week trip helped the Chinese e-commerce executives get a better sense of what America has to offer. And he adds it also lays the groundwork for future cooperation. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Department of Water Resources announced an initial water allocation of 15 percent for most state water project contractors for the 2018 calendar year. But don't let that 15 percent scare you. That allocation will likely change depending on rain and snowfall received this winter. Hopefully, it'll go up. The state's major reservoirs are currently holding much more than their historical averages. Shasta Lake, north 
of Redding, the federal Central Valley Project's largest reservoir, now holds 3.2 million acre feet, 71% of its 4.5 million acre foot capacity, and 119% of its historical average. San Luis Reservoir, a critical south of Delta storage facility for both the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project, now holds 1.5 million acre feet, 74% of its 2 million acre feet capacity, and 124% of its historical average for the date. New Malona's Dam now holds 83% of its 2.4 million acre feet capacity and 148% of its average for this date. Lake Oroville is the state's laggard, currently holding 59% of its historical average this time of year, but there's a very good reason why. Water was released beginning in spring to provide adequate flood protection during reconstruction of the main spillway. USDA's latest edition of its Rural America at a Glance study looked at the growth of internet broadband over the last 15 years. There's been a very large increase in the use of broadband since 2001. In rural areas, it went up from 2 to 61% between 2001 and 2016. Yeah, John Cromartie of the Economic Research Service says rural broadband subscription growth slowed down after 2010, in part due to options such as cellular phone service. However, when looking at rural household broadband connectivity on a countywide level... The change that it shows just over the last six years indicates that there's been a fairly significant expansion in terms of broadband use, improvement in broadband use in many counties in rural areas. Meanwhile, Internet access remains limited in some rural locales, such as those that are isolated or located in high-poverty, high-minority areas. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Farmers over the age of 65 now outnumber farmers under 35 by a margin of 6 to 1. And U.S. farmland is overwhelmingly concentrated in the hands of older farmers. Something like nearly two-thirds of farmland is currently managed by someone over the age of 55. NAS, that's the National Agricultural Statistics Service, estimates that over the next five years, the lifespan of the next farm bill, by the way, nearly 100 million acres of U.S. farmland are expected to change ownership, and they're going to need new farmers. Fortunately, many young Americans are stepping up and launching new farm businesses. In fact, for only the second time in the last century, the 2012 Census of Agriculture registered an increase over the previous census in the number of farmers under the age of 35. But those young farmers face serious obstacles to launching and growing their farm businesses. What are those obstacles? Let's find out. We're talking with Andrew Berenberg. He's the National Policy Director for the Young Farmers Coalition. Coalition. And Andrew, I, I, from everything I hear from uh, the young farmers I deal with, they want land and they can't find it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so we at the National Young Farmers Coalition uh, conducted a national survey earlier this year um, where we surveyed over 3,500 Americans under 40 who are either aspiring, current, or former farmers. Um, and we found that access to farmland is the single biggest challenge that young farmers face. Um, and that's true uh, regardless of geography um, and regardless of whether or not they grew up on a farm or are coming into agriculture from non-farming backgrounds. Um, this is a, a problem that's universal uh, across this new generation of farmers. Um, 
and is something that is uh, is an acute obstacle uh, that we need to deal with, uh, especially given those statistics that you just cited. What is it about the land? Is it unaffordable rental fees? The lack of availability of land? What what is what are the exact reasons for this? Yeah, so it is uh, such such a, a large and complex problem that we really wanted to dig into that further. Um, we found a range of answers. Uh, the most common. Uh, have to do with the price of farmland. Um, so between uh, 2004 and 2013, between that 10-year window, uh, we saw U.S. farmland prices uh, double over that over that time frame. And and for our young farmers uh, getting into farming now, uh, that's most of their adult lifetime. Uh, so in that in that exact time frame, they saw farmland prices double. Um, so as you are a young person trying to enter the business, uh, trying to start a new uh, farm business and make it work, uh, that's a significant impediment. Uh, so that's the number one reason uh, that we found. Um, and of course, you know, there are, are many factors um, that that really uh, exacerbate that problem as well. Access to credit is one. Um, we've also found some potential impediments in the tax code that's preventing uh, this retiring generation from being able to transfer their farms over to a, a new and beginning farmer. Um, and of course, as you know, no farmer wants to see their farmland fall out of production. Um, you know, every farmer that we work with that's entering that retirement age, um, they all want to transfer that farmland to a new generation, whether it's uh, in their in their own family or, or outside of it. Um, but unfortunately, there are there are many factors that are preventing them from doing so. Um, and that's and that's really why we conducted the survey and, and why we're excited to, to get to work as Congress tackles a new farm bill. I would think that many of these uh, young farmers who are coming along may have had the benefit that their elders did not have, and that's a college education. But in this day and age, a college education also brings along staggering debt from student loans. Is this part of the problem as well? Absolutely. And student loan debt was the second most commonly cited challenge uh, that young farmers we surveyed cited. Um and of course, that factors into that land access challenge, right? If you are having to make those monthly student loan payments um, on top of your uh, overall farm business cash flow, um, that's going to make uh, a serious problem. And, and that's also going to make you a less competitive credit applicant as you go to the bank or you go to um, your FSA lender. Um, when they see that on your on your credit application, um, that's a cause for concern. Um, so that's that's something we we certainly have to tackle as well. Um, and again, that's it's not just an issue of of first generation farmers, um, you know, getting their college degrees and then deciding to make a go of it here in the agricultural sector. Our survey found that um, multi generation farmers, so your so called farm kids, are also more likely than your average. U.S. adult under 40 to have gone to college, to have sought um, a degree past high school, um, you know, whether it's in uh, in business or agronomy or, or some sort of, um, you know, engineering field or or technical uh, expertise, you know, we're finding that 
that young folks are increasingly going to college uh, to skill up before they return uh, back to their communities to, to grow food. Here in California, the dominoes are falling as far as the lack of labor available for agriculture. I would think even on a smaller scale, if you're just a, a couple of youngsters starting out farming, at some point you're going to need help and help is hard to find. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and of course, labor has always been um, you know, both the biggest line item on, on that farm budget sheet um, and also a significant problem, but one that's it's grown uh, increasingly difficult for farmers across the board, uh, young and old. Uh, and of course, you know, for for uh, more established farmers out out west in your neck of the woods, um, that's finding uh, skilled labor, um, especially during the harvest season. Um, but you know, we're also finding that that's a challenge, as you said, for smaller farms. Um, you know, and that's why we were calling for increased investments um, in training opportunities for young people. Um, I think, you know, availability of farm labor is one thing, um, but finding um, young, skilled labor um, across the board is an issue. And so, um, you know, there's there's no single way to to learn how to farm and to get trained up. Uh, and that's why we need to support, you know, many avenues um, into that into that avenue um excuse me and so yeah the the farm bill of course um offers some opportunity to that we're calling for increased funding for a program called the beginning farmer and rancher development program which is the only federal initiative specifically designed to train new farmers uh both in in business planning and and financial management but also actual technical skills um and we think that's going to help us close the gap um, and help every farmer find find good, skilled labor to get the job done. Because um, that's the entire agricultural sector is, is, really, is really calling for that right now. The tax bill that's working its way through Congress, who knows what the final will look like, but uh, part of the changes there are changes to the Affordable Care Act. I would think health insurance and affordable health insurance is one of the prime concerns of anybody in farming, but especially young farmers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for one thing, I mean, farming is one of the most dangerous career paths you can choose in the United States. Um, and that's according to the federal government, the CDC. Um, you know, but it is also it's not just acute risks like that, but it's a physical job. Um, and there is significant wear and tear um, over over one's lifetime in the field. Um, so that's, of course, uh, a top challenge across the board. Um, and in fact, it is even impacting that land access issue. Like I said, we hear from many retiring farmers who um, have a difficult time selling their farmland to a new farmer. Um, because as you know, farmers are typically cash poor, asset rich. And so as they plan their end of life care and see a lot of uncertainty in their healthcare budget, it's difficult um, for them to, to to financially plan that that end of life and their retirement, and that's create that's creating some some repercussions uh, in terms of farmland transition. But for young farmers, we found that a healthcare was the number three challenge cited uh, by by young farmers that we surveyed. We also found um, when we asked them what is the single most important program or policy 
the, the number one answer was the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I, I think that's true for a number of reasons. Um, but one of them that we know is is expanded Medicaid, um, you know, especially in those first years of your business. Um, income may not be very high, and especially as you're trying to invest, um, you know, every penny you have into growing that business and making it viable, um, having that access to expanded Medicaid has been critical. Um, so, as you said, we're very concerned about what this uh, this latest tax bill means for the Affordable Care Act that's been so important to young and beginning farmers. Uh, and as I said earlier, there are also some significantly some, some significant missed opportunities in that tax bill to create more incentives uh, to get young people onto the land. Anything you want to add to this? Well, I would like to uh, encourage any of your listeners to go to our website, youngfarmers.org, uh, where they can find the full report on our National Young Farmer Survey, um, as well as our list of policy reforms that we're calling for uh, and that we're calling the Young Farmer Agenda. Um, and there are federal policies, um, which are particularly timely for the farm bill um, and for tax reform, but there are also state-level policies. Um, so things that that your your governors, your state senators, state representatives, assembly members um, can do back home, uh, rate your state capitals to to help young farmers in in California and elsewhere. Um, and and really, you know, because we all have a stake in making sure um, that we have a viable agricultural economy and food system here, we're calling on not only not only farmers, um, but also consumers, business owners, landowners. Uh, really, this needs to be a national priority that that we all tackle together. Um, so, youngfarmers.org is is the uh, the jumping off point, and and we hope that that everyone will join us. Andrew Berenberg is the national policy director for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Andrew, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.